I'm curious, how many of you have ever volunteered to coach a youth sports team? Anybody ever do that? And uh, not just, maybe not even just like ages. How many of you ever coached like a four-year-old soccer team? Isn't that a riot? Like if you can lead four-year-olds to play soccer, you could lead anything. I'm curious, how many, how many of you know what it's like to race out the door on Saturday morning? You bought the jersey, you bought the cleats, you got all the orange slices bagged up so you could pass it out at halftime, and your son and your daughter finally make it into the game, and instead of chasing the ball, they're picking flowers and catching grasshoppers. <laughs> Heather and I, we've got, we got some fond memories like that. We've got some, we got some moments like that, but that's more than just a funny memory or a fond moment. That can actually be a window into a profound life lesson. And it's this. Just because you're in the game doesn't mean you're in the game. That's a lesson for life. It's a lesson for the Christian life. It's a lesson for our church life. Just because we're in the game doesn't actually mean that we're in the game. The Apostle Paul, he used uh, sports imagery. He used language like winning and succeeding and, and achieving a prize to help connect us all with some very urgent truth. He wrote this, 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run into, in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I love God's word because it's real, it's raw. Sometimes it's like God is using it to get down in the dirt with us. What I appreciate about this passage, it's like the Apostle Paul has called time out. We're all huddled up with him on the sideline and he's saying to us, we are in the game of our lives. Compete to win. If you're here last week, do you remember what the prize is? It's not going to heaven. It's not salvation. We don't compete for that. Being fully loved, fully forgiven, fully accepted, fully delighted in by Jesus, that's a gift we receive by trusting in him by faith. The prize that the Apostle Paul is talking about is leading people who don't know Jesus to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. And in the same way that athletes choose, they just predecide to train in obscurity. And the same way that athletes predecide that they're going to make all kinds of decisions now to set them up to win later. Because we are in something that's far more important than just a game. We are going to do the same thing. We're going to make all kinds of predecisions now that set us up to win in important moments later. And so this is our anthem. We're saying this every week in the series. Wise people don't just make good decisions they make pre-decisions. This is one of the most Jesus-like things that we can do. When we do this, we're being wise, but we're not just being wise. We're being like the one who is wisdom personified. I want to share with you what might be my favorite set of verses that describe and celebrate the kind of pre-decision that Jesus made. In Hebrews, it says this, again, starting with sports imagery, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all the followers of Jesus who came before us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so if we focus on him, what are we looking at? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus predecided it didn't matter how shameful the cross would be. Jesus predecided it didn't matter how painful the cross would be. Jesus predecided he would endure whatever he had to endure for the joy that was on the other side of it. And for those of us who know him and response to that, because we understand that, we run for him. And we run together. So over the course of this series, this is what we're doing. We're, we're looking at this passage right here. It describes the very first church ever. So if you have a Bible, take it out. And, or you want to open up your phone, go to Acts chapter 2. And each week we're looking at a different angle of this very first church from the very beginning. Because they were a church that's an example to every church. So that means that they're an example for us. In Acts chapter 2, what we're about to read takes place at the conclusion of a guy named the Apostle Peter giving his very first sermon really ever. Verse 41 says, so those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Is this how we know God was in this? A dude gives his very first sermon ever and 3,000 people get baptized. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How should we think about the, this very first church ever? If they had a, a scouting report on this church, it might look like something like this. Devotion to teaching and fellowship and inspiring stories of God at work. They experienced generosity and humility. They gathered in large public settings. They gathered in small, more intimate settings. They enjoyed hospitality and good food. And they were growing in number daily. And last week we started off just by focusing on this, the devoted to the teaching of the apostles and to each other. They were devoted to the teaching of God's word and to each other. They were devoted to, to teaching of God's word. They were devoted to each other. And because of that devotion they shared, it must have felt like the best kind of relationships possible. And because the Christian life is a team sport, and because of this mission that Jesus has given us, it's a team sport. We cannot talk about the mission of our church without talking about our relationship with our church and relationships at church. This is a recap from last week. We said this, the best relationships are defined by high trust and healthy expectations. High trust, healthy expectations. And we can visualize it like this. Any relationship in your life, you can plot somewhere on this chart. The higher you go up this way, the more healthy expectations you have go down, the fewer you have. The more you go this way, the higher the trust is. The more you come back this way, the lower the trust is. The best relationships in life are up here. And if you want to experience off the charts trust with each other, we got to choose. we got to choose the elements of trust. And when we do that, when we have the best kind of relationships possible, it feels like this. It feels great. And it requires me choosing it and you choosing it, everybody on all sides of the relationship choosing the elements of trust, which are, to be honest, safe and reliable. 
So last week, we really focused on this. We laid a foundation of trust. Today begins a pivot. Today begins a series of conversations where we focus on the next component of great relationships, which is healthy expectations. And if when I start talking about expectations in a relationship, if you're like, whoa, I don't like that, if that feels prickly or just a tad uncomfortable, it might be because somewhere in your story, you know what it's like for someone to impose expectations on you. That's not how it works in the best kind of relationships possible. Expectations are not imposed. Expectations are invited. And it sounds like this. I'm inviting you to depend on me. And I'm inviting you to give me permission to depend on you. And the best kind of relationships possible, all sides, not just one, all sides say this to each other, I give you permission to count on me. It works this way in the best kind of friendships. It works this way in the best kind of dating relationships. It works this way in the best kind of business partnerships. It works this way in the best kinds of, of, of marriages where we give each other permission to count on us. Here's another recap from last week. We said this, wise people pre-decide the outcomes, the relational outcomes they want and the relational inputs they'll give. And we all want the best kind of relationships possible. No one turns to somebody they're in a great relationship with and says, you know, this is so great. Let's mess it up a little bit. We don't do that. We want the best kind of relationships. This right here is about taking responsibility. It's about taking responsibility for what we will contribute to the relationship and what we won't contribute to the relationship. And we all want this. We want the best kind of relationship possible. So we started talking about trust. Now we're going to start talking about expectations. And if any of us feel a sense of expectation up here, but we're on this side of the line and it feels like low trust, you know what that's like? It's like this right here. It doesn't feel great, does it? And if you're there, we're talking about relationships at church, at this church, if you're here, it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean anybody's done anything wrong on the other side of the relationship. All that we know is this, is that there isn't sufficient trust in the relationship. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means there isn't sufficient trust. But what we need to recognize is there is a vulnerability that comes with being here. And the vulnerability is this. If we stay there long enough, we risk becoming cynical. How many of you have seen that play out in the life of somebody else? How many of us have experienced that happen to ourselves? Now down here, there's not a high sense of expectation, but there's not a high sense of, of trust either. And what is it like when you're in a relationship where you don't feel a lot of expectations either way, you don't feel a lot of trust either way? It feels like this, it's just meh. This is like my relationship with folding laundry. Meh. Rather not. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that if you're there, it doesn't mean you've done something wrong. If you're there, it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody else has done anything wrong. It just simply means this. It just means there isn't sufficient trust. There's not a lot of trust in the relationship, and there's not a lot of commitment either. And just like there's a vulnerability here, there's vulnerability here too, and this is it. The vulnerability is if we stay there too long, we risk becoming complacent. Now on the other side, Things start to get better. We're over here. We're not feeling a high sense of expectation yet, but we are feeling trust. Who likes being trusted? You guys like it? 
How many of you guys like feeling like you can just trust somebody else? Doesn't that feel great? When you're here, maybe you're not feeling a lot of expectations yet, but you're feeling a lot of trust. It's awesome. It feels wonderful. This is not the destination. We, we really have to get here where we have a place of high trust before we can ever get up here where there's healthy expectation. But this feels really, really good. Believe it or not, just like there's vulnerability here and here, there's vulnerability here also. And this is it. If we stay there too long, we risk simply becoming a consumer. Now, we all start off in life as consumers. That's just the way it is. We start off in life being on the receiving end. But if we never grow and we never mature into being contributors as well, it is a sign that something has gone terribly wrong. We want to have the kind of relationships because we have such a strong, high level of trust that we're happy to embrace healthy expectations because we want the best kind of relationships possible. Now, as we're talking about this today, again, if it, talking about expectations, if it feels uncomfortable, maybe it's because we're here. Maybe it's because you're here. And we're not trying to get you to grab a hold of expectations and commit to anything. Rather, I want you to take advantage of this opportunity to simply build trust. Just take advantage of every opportunity you have to let trust grow so you can get here. And those of us who are on this side of the line where we feel like we have trust, then to embrace healthy expectations so we can have the best kind of relationship possible. Now as a church, just like in any other healthy relationship, we don't want to move faster than the speed of trust. We want to move at the speed of trust. We can try to go faster than the speed of trust. But when we do, we tend to get bumps and bruises along the way. It can hurt. Probably ought to be honest. There are times in life where circumstances are such that a relationship even a church relationship, we have to pivot, we have to make changes, we have to move faster than the speed of trust. And maybe you felt that before. Maybe you feel that now. So what we, one of the reasons we're doing this series is to create some breathing room where we can slow down and focus on building trust. And as we build that kind of trust, then we can pivot and embrace healthy kinds of expectations. So let's turn back to the scouting report on the very first church ever, and we're going to focus on this one, generosity and humility. They experienced high amounts of generosity and humility, and I say that because of what we read in verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, when I read that, something comes to mind from Luke chapter 18. Maybe you're thinking about that too. There was a young, a rich young guy who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, uh, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. So he's like, yes, I'm going to do that. Is that what happened? You guys, no, he didn't do it. Luke 18 says he walked away sad. Why? Because he was very rich. And what that young man was unable to do, this church is now experiencing with each other and for each other. And I guess the question is, is that what we should do? Should we sell as much as we can so that we can give away as much as we can? Last night, there's a guy sitting in the front row, and he said, man, I hope not. <laughs> Personally, I don't think that that's what we're supposed to do. I'm keeping most of my stuff. Now, am I saying that because I'm a middle-aged, middle-class evangelical who's twisting Scripture to match my lifestyle and agenda? Maybe. But I don't think so. And this is why I don't think so. I've got four reasons. Number one, 
If you go back and you read Luke 18, this guy lived for his money and his stuff. And it was his idol. And Jesus spoke to the deep down idol of his heart. And Jesus wanted that guy to shift his allegiance away from his wealth to him. Second reason. Among the disciples who traveled with Jesus, there was a contingent of wealthy, influential women. They were like a gospel super PAC who funded Jesus' ministry. Jesus never asked them once to sell all their stuff. Jesus, there's not even a hint of Jesus expecting them to sell anything. My third reason is the Apostle Paul wrote a number of letters to young pastors instructing them, and some of those instructions uh, included how to pastor people who are wealthy. And the Apostle Paul never shamed anybody for being wealthy. He said, tell those who are rich to be rich in good deeds. And here's my fourth reason, and it comes from about three chapters ahead, Acts chapter 5. If you haven't read this, I need you to go read it. It's a story of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of property, and they came to the church, and they gave money to the church, and they told church leadership, this is all the money we got from the property, but they secretly held some back for themselves. And the Holy Spirit struck them both dead. But before that judgment fell on them, the apostle Peter said this to them. He said, listen, that property was yours to do with whatever you wanted to do with it. The money that you made from it was yours to do with whatever you wanted to do with it. The sin is you have tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then judgment fell on them. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with making money. And there's nothing wrong with keeping money. And so everyone who's in this room, everyone who's watching online, whether you feel like you have a lot or a little, this, I want you to hear me on this. I don't think any follower of Jesus should ever feel guilty about how much you have. I don't think you should feel guilty. You know what I think Jesus wants us to feel? Responsibility. We shouldn't feel guilty. We should feel responsible. And my question to all of us, what do you want to do with the responsibility that you have? The gospel movement was church-based and crowdfunded. This mission that Jesus has given us, it's church-based. It's not, it's a team sport. We do it together. And it's crowdfunded. All the ministry we do is funded by you. And the mission that Jesus has given us is this, to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. We want people who don't know him to come to know him. We want people who know him to grow in their relationship of devotion with him. That is the prize for which we run. And we're running together. And so that means that as a church, we are on this incredible adventure of submitting our wants and our preferences and our agenda to that all-important, urgent mission. And one of the ways that we do that together is by giving financially to our local church. A couple of reasons why. Number one, motivated by grateful obedience to Jesus. And the second is because it is the thrill of a lifetime to be on mission with him. And it is our privilege to fund it together. Now, for those of you who are paying attention to that passage, they gave to everyone who had need. And you're looking around this room. You might be thinking to yourself, Rick, I'm looking around. I don't see anybody who looks like they're in need. Y'all look like you're doing all right. When I came here three and a half years ago, I learned that our church had two nicknames. People said, this is what ARC stands for. Do you know what our nicknames are? 
Number one, awfully rich church. Or two, autumn rich church. Kind of funny. And sometimes people look around and go, this church has got a lot of money. What do you need me to get for? As a matter of fact, two weeks ago, someone said this to me. Our church has a lot of money. To which I said, small problem, not exactly true. This is what's true. Our church doesn't have a lot of money. We have a lot of stuff. And that's not a bad thing. We don't have a lot of money. We have a lot of stuff. We have, we have incredible property. We have incredible facilities. We have amazing tools and ministry resources to participate in the work of the ministry. And I think we should feel incredibly grateful for that. That is a good thing. I don't mean this in a bad way. Our church doesn't have a lot of money. We have a lot of stuff. And we do a lot of stuff. Our church is heavily invested in ministry in this community. Our church is heavily invested in important ministry around the world. And our church is heavily invested in ministry inside of these walls to those who already consider this their church family. And just like the very first church, we also have inspiring stories of God at work. It was just last month. I hope you were able to be there at our outdoor baptism. This is an example of part of the prize that we're running for. 34 people got baptized just a month ago at our outdoor baptism event, ranging in age from like 13 to 90. And it was awesome to be a part of this moment where not just young teenagers were saying, I'm giving my life to Christ, but there were adults who were just recently gave their life to Christ and they wanted to stand up and let everybody know. And I love being a part of a church where it's not just kids, but adults too say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to follow him. That's an incredible thing. And we know this. We know this. But sometimes it's helpful just to say it out loud. All the ministry we do is funded by you. When Heather and I give financially, when you give financially, when we come together, we fund the mission together. Now, our vision for giving financially might be more expansive than the very first church in the way they started out. They focused on giving to each other who had need. But if you read through the book of Acts, if you read throughout the New Testament, you'll discover this, that their vision for what they gave financially to grew. They started giving financially to support widows who were vulnerable and orphans who were vulnerable. They started giving financially to make sure that they had pastors and leaders who could lead in ministry efforts. They started giving financially to support uh, missionaries and the launching of brand new churches. And they gave financially to support churches who were struggling. And the list goes on, but basically what I'm trying to highlight is that going all the way back to the beginning, we stand in a long line of men and women who pre-decided to give financially. We could say it like this. We benefit today from others who pre-decided to give yesterday. And if you're new to our church, let me apologize. It's a little awkward. Your first Sunday, we're talking about money. It's not normally like this. But if you're new to our church, you may not know this, but you're sitting in a room with some of the most generous people you may ever meet. Because this church is full of people who have been given for a long, long time. Not because they're getting anything in return, but because they want you to be able to sit in a space like this and to hear about Jesus who changed their life. And they want you to experience that too. And if you're one of those ones who've been giving for a long time, let me just say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. We benefit from you. But you know what else is true? Others will benefit tomorrow from what we pre-decide to give today. Someone in my position, when a pastor talks about giving, we can typically come from three different angles. 
I talk about three different kind of motivations. The first motivation is intervention giving. We're giving in response to an immediate need. And when we give, and that's a good way to give, and when we give to a respo- in response to an immediate need, it comes with a kind of dopamine hit because we see how we got to intervene and help solve a problem immediately. And that's a good thing. Our church does that from time to time. We'll do that in November with Angel Tree. The other way of uh, approach to giving, the second one is campaign giving. A group of people rally around a cause or a project, and we give to that. And that type of giving also comes with a sort of dopamine hit, because especially when you get to see the end result of that project, it just feels good. And the thing that intervention giving and campaign giving have in common is that they're both temporary. They're not bad. They're good. But they're both temporary. But there's another approach to giving that I'm suggesting for us to consider today because I have become convinced from the Old Testament and New Testament, this is the approach to giving that Jesus is calling his followers into. And the approach to giving that I want to suggest to you is faithful giving. And faithful giving does not come with a dopamine hit. But it comes with deep and abiding joy because it is the approach to giving that supports the best kind of relationship possible. When we talk about faithful giving, this is what I mean. Faithful giving is pre-deciding how much we will give and how regularly we will give. It's how much and how regularly. And sometimes people ask me, Rick, how much should I give? My answer is the same every time. I'm not going to tell you. It's not my business to tell you how much it should be. That's between you and Jesus. And if you're married, that's between you, your spouse, in Jesus. And when it comes to how regularly we should give, it's going to play out differently for some of us. Some people it's going to be weekly. Some people it's going to be monthly. For various reasons, for some people it's annually. But this is what wise people do who want the best kind of relationships possible. They predecide with my church, this is how much I'm going to give and this is how regularly I'm going to give. As we talk about these kinds of, these kinds of commitment, this kind of healthy expectation in church, we want this But if this feels prickly, if it feels like a jacket that just fits too small and is itchy and uncomfortable, maybe it's because right now you feel here. You're on this side of the line of trust, and trust feels low. So this is why I want you to know, I don't want anything from you. This is what I want for you. I want you to experience off-the-charts trust first. And so would you give yourself an opportunity to build trust? But for those of us who are on this side of the line where we feel trust, would we say yes to healthy expectations so we can have the best kind of relationships possible and the mission of our church could be funded. Years ago, in our 20s, when Heather and I started out in in marriage, we we wanted to be generous, but it was hard to be generous. We wanted to be generous with our church. We wanted to be generous with people when we saw needs. We, We had this dream that one day that we would adopt um, but the problem is we were young and we were, we were poor and we were the kind of couple that we would, um, we would still have too much month at the end of the money. You guys know what that's like? And so we knew that we had to get our finances in order. And we realized if we really want to achieve our dream of being able to foster, of being able to adopt, we probably need, we need the kind of stability that comes with owning a home. So we were eventually able to, to purchase a home. We did Financial Peace University through our local church because we wanted to be the boss of our money instead of our money being the boss of us. And our money had been the boss of us for too long. And so we went through all of this and we eventually got our, our finances straight. And because we did all of that, you know what we were able to do? We were able to adopt our oldest daughter. And we cheated. We adopted her when she was 17. 
And she's now 30 and married and has got two kids. So I'm a grandpa, but I go by captain. And, and we, got to be, we got to be involved in some other beautiful things. I'm not going to tell you about that now. We got to be involved in some other beautiful things because we made the pre-decision to go through, through financial peace. I didn't tell the other services this, but I'll tell you this. We did, how many of you guys have ever done financial peace? How many of you guys have ever done the first budget meeting? Four hours, countless tears. <laughs> but let me tell you right now, it's a whole lot better than it was that first time. And when you make the kind of pre-decisions like this, it sets you up for freedom and joy and generosity later. And so in the same way that Heather and I, we had these dreams that we couldn't realize until we went through that process, our church has dreams too. Let's start with the bad news. Did you know every year we shut down more churches in our country than we start? And the people who are experts in this area, they say this is a bad thing. Every year, the population of the United States increases. And every year, the number of churches available for people to go to decreases. What would it mean to you? What would it mean for us if we became the kind of church that we could help new churches launch debt-free? What would it mean to you, especially in a rural area, when a church feels like they're about to shut their doors permanently, that we could be a friend to them and we could help them keep their doors open, experience revitalization. And because of the leadership that's being developed here, leaders would go there and help them thrive and run to win in their community. What would that mean? Now, I think that kind of thing is not that far off. I think we could do that in the next seven to 10 years. But if we ever get to experience that kind of dream, it's going to be because today we pre-decide to be the kind of church that gives faithfully. There are a couple of approaches that a church can, can take every year. As a church gets towards the end of the year, it can scramble to figure out how are we going to get everything paid for. Or at the end of the year, because of a church that's embraced regular faithful giving, it can be strategizing, how are we going to deploy this money to our, finance, to our ministry partners, and how are we going to deploy these funds to our ministry dreams? Which sounds better to you, scrambling or strategizing? Strategizing. I'd rather be strategizing than scrambling. And the way that we get there, the way that we get there, is to say, I'm going to make the pre-decision to get ourselves on a path where we're going to give regularly and faithfully. And so I've got a couple of next steps for us. Number one, if you've never done this, especially because you don't want debt to be an obstacle to generosity in your life, would you pre-decide to take advantage of Financial Peace University? If you go to our website, autumnridge.church, it's on the main page. We give it all away to anybody who wants it for free because we want you to live in financial freedom. Second thing, Predecide to give faithfully. Between you and Jesus, between you and your spouse and Jesus, how much do you want to give? How regularly do you want to give? All right. I'm going to tell you the same thing I told the previous two services. I got a tiny bit more left, but it's up to you if, we, if you hear it. Because it requires, it requires a little, like a real talk moment. I could pray and we could sing and go eat lunch. Or you could say, Rick, I give you permission for a tiny real talk moment. What do you want? Real talk. real talk. All right. Here's real talk. Unedited. Gloves off. 
the kind of relationship we're talking about, experiencing this together, high trust, healthy expectation, it does not depend at all on liking every decision that our church makes. And anybody who's been married longer than a cup of coffee knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because you're never going to like every decision a church makes. It's, it's not even a part of the component to be able to have high trust and healthy expectations. I don't like every decision our church makes. I got more organizational authority than any other single person in this room. I don't like every decision. But you know what I love? I love the direction. And I love the prize that we're getting after. And so if you love the direction, would you lock in? If you say, I think, we're, I think we're moving in the right direction, and I think we're getting after the right prize, would you lock in and would you run with us? Would you commit to being a ministry partner and giving financially so that we can run to win? And like the Apostle Paul said, run so as to win the prize. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we have so much to be grateful for. You have been so generous with us. You just give, you give yourself away. You give your goodness away. You give your, your love away. You give your, your grace away. And you invite us into the joy of doing that with you. God, may we be people who are not afraid of any reason. May we be people who don't shrink back because of any fear, God. May we be people who don't shrink back because of anxiety of finally getting honest about our budget and, and, and setting on that path. God, may we be people who are not afraid to let go of the hard things we've been working for so that we can invest in this mission that you've called us into. And God, we are trusting with our whole hearts, with our whole selves, that you are going to take what we give and do what we could never do on our own. And God, it is a thrill of a lifetime to join you. And God, we want to see other people come to know you. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.